welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the CCM Investing Power Hour, number 49. Ryan, uh, I'm here as always with you. My name is Brett Schaefer, I should say. And yeah, this is the Power Hour. Ryan, how, how are you feeling this week as we close out earnings season? Bit of a hectic morning, honestly. A little bit of context around our personal lives. We're Brett, both going on trips, yeah. Brett, we're going on a trip. So we've been, I've been talking all morning. So sorry if my voice is raspy. We're trying to front load some of this work. I'm going to be in New York this weekend meeting with a number of previous podcast guests, actually, uh, friends of the okay. show. So that'll be fun. Excited for that. Um, and then there's been some stuff, but nothing too newsy in the financial markets uh, as of late. Nah, we got a lot of small topics. I think it'll be fun this week. Yeah. And as a reference for the Investing Power Hour, if this is your first time listening or watching, we go live every Thursday around lunchtime, Eastern time today, a little early, uh, but that is because we're going on these trips and we wanted to get it out a little bit early before we have to leave. But regardless, in these shows, we bring in some investing topics, some business news topics, some finance topics. Sometimes we bring on guests like last week, we had Emmett Savage from My Wall Street. And we just kind of go with no script and see what happens. We bring some notes, but that's really it. But before we get into the power hour this week, today's episode is presented by Stratosphere, the best web-based research terminal that we use for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. Ryan is showing it on the shared screen right now. They have fantastic charting capabilities. They have fantastic historical financials where if you use a premium plan, it can go all the way back to 35 plus years for hundreds of different companies, maybe even thousands. It saves us tons of time digging through SEC filings or saving time that would be going through SEC filings with highly accurate data that is triple checked for accuracy. And if you still, you know, you still want to look at SEC filings, they have an SEC file aggregation tool for all your companies, for your watch list, for all that good stuff that can really, really help you save time, uh, which it does for us. So if you want to check them out, use Stratosphere as your investing home screen, ditch Yahoo Finance and some of those old buggy legacy tools and try it for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io. Okay, Ryan, what is your first topic today? That's a good question. Let me check. Oh, capital gains tax. Um, couple of yeah. comments about this last night. Uh, apparently, President Biden's new proposed tax plan would take the long-term capital gains tax rate from 20% to 39.6%. This wasn't approved uh, or, or passed, but um, that would be a steep change, no doubt. So. Honest question here. If it passed, how would you change your investing approach, if at all? Ooh, good question. Well, I think I would be a lot more 
So from the professional perspective, I think we would take it into account for sure, because when we're and that, but I'm going to talk more personal because that's really the audience we're talking to here and the professionals don't need to hear me talk about it. But from a personal perspective, I think I would be much more. Uh, how do I say it? Deliberate about what stocks go into my Roth IRA or any sort of tax deferred account. And if that's a position that I think would be more likely to be sold for a gain, or if it's that type of one compared to a never sell position, or maybe it's something that has high dividend income, I would put that in the Roth IRA as opposed to the non-taxable account. I think that would be the only thing that changes for me. But besides that, I don't think this can let... I don't know. We try to invest with taxes being low anyway, so I don't think it would affect affect much for me. What do you think? No, well, yeah. The it, it's kind of interesting because you, you can. I guess you can take it one or two ways. One, it's a big win for the never sell camp because maybe you just wait until they reduce the capital gains tax again to sell some of these positions <laughs> that you own yeah. forever. But for me, and I worry about the incentive that this creates. Um, it makes more sense to lock in short-term capital gains. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think we need any more incentives to lock in short-term games, given how trade-happy the market has been and market participants have been lately. So I don't know if that's going to, like, how much of an impact that will have. I mean, yes, you're right. It does incentivize comparatively to have more short-term than long-term. Um, but Which- I think we I, I, we already... Right, we already we already see so much of that. Can it even get any worse? Ah, I, mean, I guess I never say never. I guess that's that's. Uh, I just wish for my worst nightmare for <laughs> to double the day trader gurus out there. Yeah, I mean, it would incentivize me to do a lot of stuff that I think would like be shorter duration bets, like Maybe. which would probably be a. I mean, that'd be stupid on my part, but like merger harp stuff or stuff where I think it'll close like. I could lock in short-term gains, although it's that's not my that's not something I'm good with. But my concern is it does incentivize gambling, like it incentivizes shorter-term bets because if you can lock in shorter-term capital gains, you're theoretically, I would say, most people are getting a lower rate, right? Yes, I think as an economist would agree with you, but I think economists don't live in reality. And in reality, I don't think it would change much because most people do not invest off of these type of things. Um, or, you know, some people do, but I think most people don't. And most people invest off of feelings. Yeah. So this tax stuff, like they, they, they don't even know. So I don't think I mean, it's going to cause much, but I think on an institutional side, it could, it could cause some rumblings for sure. It's a win for the never sell camp for sure, because you get now you want something where you can pick when to sell it, not because you have to sell it because it's yeah. like a horrible business or something. I also love how many people are in shambles like about this, like, oh my gosh, how stupid. I'm like, mo- <laughs> capital's 80- had its, we've been good. Uh, if we're in team capital, I guess technically we are, even though we're basically the most broke team in team capital or most broke people in team capital. The last 40 years have been very kind to us. So, um, let's, yeah. You know. If they got to raise them a little bit, it's not a giant. I mean, it's a big raise, but you know. Well, I don't know. I don't love the policy, but I would rather just have like higher. 
uh, like uh, income tax brackets where, like, oh, right, you know, right. like just extend it, extend it beyond the current. Because uh, what's the threshold right now? Like forty nine percent is the max, or something like that. If you make like, or is it forty? It's like forty percent. I have no idea. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't worry about that stuff. But like, um, I'd rather extend it that way because then, I mean, the, the problem with this is like, if I'm getting taxed to invest, if I'm getting taxed at potentially forty percent on capital gains for like, and maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, but for big and like long dated investments, it doesn't really incentivize me to participate. Like there's less incentive to fund a lot of businesses. Oh, I think you're overrating the impact of that. I don't think it would have much of an impact in reality if this happened. Remember how high capital gains was? It's been high before in US history. And was that any more, any less innovative? Um, maybe. I, I, I guess we don't have the exact details and it's kind of hard to, to calculate, but um uh, shoot what was i gonna say i think i was gonna say that yeah that you're overrating it but we'll see if it, it's probably not gonna get passed either also oh one thing i was gonna say on the income stuff i think that works good in theory too but a lot i think they probably want to target fairly the a lot of the ultra wealthy people don't really have necessarily income you know so they want to target that and a lot of people can shield themselves from that so well here this me might out. be better this might be better uh Instead Let's of, get those real estate loopholes out of here. Like, screw that. That, that, right? Those real estate loopholes are. And I guess, hey, don't fight them. You should just join them. Maybe, maybe you know the people that join real estate and, and are those investors are right because they know that it's so tax advantage. But it's just, can we just get that loophole out of here? Who who is that helping? It's helping very just, very rich people. You've just pissed off all our potential real estate. Our, our real estate, our real estate cohort. The, no, I mean, hey, let me compliment them. You are smart for taking advantage of the tax advantage of, the, of, those, of those tax loopholes, but I think the rule doesn't make much sense. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't. The I feel like America. America's largely benefited from a, short, a, a smaller long-term capital gains tax rate over the years. I'd agree. We could target it somewhere else. Yeah. Target um, short-term higher, target income at that whatever that, you know, the make it less, uh, target the ultra wealthy there, target that real estate stuff, target some other things that uh, the VAT taxes, that could be interesting yeah. as well. This one seems weird. It's more of a political game, kind of like the buyback tax. Why not do a progressive like income taxes? Like mm. you've if you've sold more than that's a good idea. Like if you've sold more than a million dollars or you've earned more than a million dollars in capital gains, anything above a million is like a higher capital gains tax rate. It's like progressive, just like income. But I like that. I like that. As someone who is not going to have much for a long time, I like that because <laughs> I think that's fair too. Because you're showing, or at least like if someone is selling, say, $10 million in a year of capital gains, you're showing that you're not going to be hurt by these taxes. Um, yeah. I hope that, I hope no one take this as political. These are just ideas. We have no affiliation. We're basically pure independent. So, <laughs> no affiliation to any part of these are just our ideas. So, no one, no, no listeners take that as anything political. Yeah. I, I have Even though it becomes doubts. all this stuff does become political and uh, when people discuss it, it's. <laughs> I doubt it'll get passed because I mean, at least not okay. at this rate at not at 40%. Maybe they're throwing a high ball out there 
so they can negotiate down to 30 or something like that. Yeah. The interesting thing is like, all right, pretty much all, all politicians have people that financially back them. It's hard to be a financial backer if you're not wealthy. And if you're wealthy, you've probably been advantaged by this long-term capital gains tax rate. So do you want to hurt the primary financial backers of every politician? The idea is probably that they would vote against it. Yeah. The that's my thinking. <laughs> Who's going to influence them? Yeah. I mean, that's probably the key reason over the last 40 years well, why some of this has happened, but we don't need to go into the historical ramifications of any sort of politics and stuff like that. Yes. Why don't we move on to the next topic? If you have nothing else to add there, Ryan, you have Sony. Um, I didn't see this, or maybe I did see it. Uh, a new dispute with Microsoft over the proposed acquisition uh, acquisition of Activision Blizzard. I should have a note as of the time of this recording, we do have a stake in Activision Blizzard. Read our um, full disclosure at our Arch Capital Fund website, although we do have the disclosure at the beginning and the start of these episodes. Yeah, I guess in terms of like updating the the situation here um they i think on february 8th uk regulators expressed they had like a continu- uh like a intermediate ruling which basically or maybe a temporary ruling that said like we're concerned about these two things which was like the exclusive games and the um potential monopoly in cloud gaming then microsoft said it licensed um it struck a deal with NVIDIA's GeForce Now, which is the cloud computing version of NVIDIA uh, or what NVIDIA offers for cloud computing, mostly on PC. I think it's only on PC. Um, but it, that kind of alleviates a couple of things. And they've also struck deals with Steam and Nintendo that gave them 10-year licenses to Call of Duty, um, which basically says, like, you know, they're, they're not interested in making their games exclusive. They're... Um, it's not going to be a monopoly in cloud gaming purely from the steel. And so the only people that's really, that are really disputing it at this point are um, Sony, which are the makers of PlayStation who ironically are the leaders in, uh, you know, console gaming. And they've also bought their own studios and they also have exclusive games for PlayStation. So kind of much more historically than Xbox. So, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, a little ironic there, but the other part I wanted to um, show the the most recent like complaint against this deal passing was th- Sony said um, basically that Microsoft could release a poor quality game for PlayStation, or they could like intentionally put bugs into their software updates for any PlayStation gamers to like ruin the experience of Call of Duty. Why would they sabotage themselves to <laughs> to get risk? like three to get like maybe a max a million new players over a three year period to transition to Xbox? Yeah, yeah, which is just it's so dumb. And as at this point, there's like I think Sony showed that they don't have like any leg to stand on the the other part i wanted to find and i can't i can't i gotta find it basically um the ceo of sony interactive entertainment said we don't want okay so oh, okay i got it right so the uh, executive vice president of activision blizzard um or one of the executive vice presidents of Activision Blizzard said, um, 
kind of there was this uh, question posed to the Sony Interactive Entertainment CEO that said literally like, you know, why do you keep refusing a long-term deal with Call of Duty? And apparently a direct quote is that he said, we don't want a new Call of Duty deal. We want to block this merger. Yeah, that's not going to help in court. Yeah, it's going to be interesting what happens because there could be, you never know what the regulators are going to do because someone might re, you know, make a move and say, okay, we're going to block it or you know, however the process works and kind of take this thing to court. Or there could be kind of a domino effect where a lot of the regulators say, no, it's fine. And then they all, all the ones that have been a little bit um, pesky about it are just going to fall in line, especially if the US, Europe, and China are all in tandem, which China is kind of its own unique um, cookie, I guess. You know, they're different, but yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, like- it's, uh, it's weird where there's so much, in, like, how do I say this? It seems like at the start, Sony and probably their lobbyists and whoever else was on their side really tried to drive the narrative that Xbox was trying to become a monopoly through this deal. When you saw that constantly in the news, right? You probably saw it. I saw it. You probably saw it as well. When in reality, that's not Xbox is actually not that successful of a division. Yeah. uh, I mean, I think the concern for PlayStation is that Game Pass is going to be a huge success and kind of steal share as the migration to cloud gaming. Do you think they make a target for one of the big, um, I think the only two big ones that would have a meaningful push like Activision would be EA, Electronic Arts, or Take-Two? Do you think Sony... Well, there were rumors. Yeah, do you think they try to throw a bag at Take-Two Interactive? What do you think that tells regulators? Like, we're going to buy Take-Two. It's, like, um, doesn't that tell if you're a regulator and that's their like, like we're gonna go out and try to buy them? Like, doesn't that give Sony no legs to stand on for like this argument? Yeah, I know. And it, like they play oh, themselves if that's the case. Yeah. Well, I think but, uh, from a regulatory perspective, this would this will help solidify Xbox and Sony's sort of duopoly. I know Nintendo's slightly different. It will solidify their duopoly even further, but there was no, and I guess maybe the Steam Deck could take on something, but, and PC is technically a competitor, but there's, there wasn't going to be a third entrant into the console wars with the same strategy as Sony and as Xbox. Cause again, Nintendo has a different strategy even before these mergers. So I don't know how this harms the consumer either way, because there's less, um, it's just one of those industries that's going to have a few players as the distribution platforms that just works better for the publishers, the players, everything. And you're just going to have some rules in place to make sure people aren't acting anti-competitively. And, you know, some industries do that. Yeah. I mean, my gut tells me the steel's going through. My, we, we own stock and Activision. So yeah, uh, so we're biased here. I mean, there is downside the, for sure, but yeah, the, uh, I was going to say the other part is from Sony's perspective, it honestly does kind of make sense to buy a competitor here, like buy take two, because then you can at least keep it, keep every game ubiquitous across consoles. Um, so like, cause if, 
if Microsoft, after the 10-year deal expires, says we're taking Call of Duty in-house, if you have Grand Theft Auto, you can just copy them and say the same. So it's kind of like a, if you do that, we'll do the same. And it makes uh, your subscription offering that much better. Yeah, but then on the flip side, like, what's the advantage of having Activision in-house for Xbox? Yeah, it's honestly not that big of a deal. And I remember kind of laughing when they said they wanted the mobile stuff. But when we look through Activision Blizzard again, they do have half their revenue from mobile. So I think that could be interesting where they're really trying to expand Xbox Game Pass to be a much more valuable subscription if you can add on mobile games. Although mobile is different because a lot of the stuff is free to play. So I don't necessarily know how they would work with that. But one of the reasonings, and I don't know if this was a lot of fluff to just appease the regulators, is that they want they said that if they have Activision, they can really go after the mobile market more and try to impede Google and Apple's duopoly um, as mobile distribution platforms. But I don't necessarily know why having a few popular mobile games is going to allow you to do that. Um, but we'll see. I don't really, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that different. Like this deal is way overhyped. The Activision Blizzard's business is not going to change much. The only thing that really mattered was getting the licensing deals for Call of Duty. And then the subscription business for Microsoft might improve a bit, but is it going to improve that much? Not really, because the monetization within a lot of these games are the add-on content, which doesn't really jive with subscription. Yeah, I agree. All right. You want to talk about Altria? Yes. Uh, the potentially worst capital allocators in, we'll talk about, maybe we'll debate this. I have, I have a nice stratosphere chart to show um, <laughs> what, so, how the narrative God. can change here. But let, let me go through. There, there's a few, um, just a few notes on what they did here. So Altria is buying another vaping company. It is called, well, NJOY. Let me see. Enjoy. Enjoy. Uh, $2.6 billion, I believe, this comes right after they exited their stake in Jewel, which they remember acquired for $12.8 billion. Here's the quote. Altria, which makes Marlboro cigarettes, will have global ownership of Enjoy's e-vapor product portfolio, including Enjoy Ace, the only pod-based e-vapor product with market authorizations from the FDA. So I think a lot of this was this company already had stuff approved. They think they're going to put it on a global distribution platform, especially the U.S. And now with how restrictive the FDA has been with vaping, they're going to have an advantage here. And this is extremely valuable to have these licenses. Um, I guess, yeah, I have one question here about the uh, the current state of the reduced risk product market. But we can have that second, I think. What are your thoughts on this deal? What are your thoughts on we followed Altria for a long uh not a long time, but for a few years now? Thoughts on the deal? Just first glance at it. Well, I I don't like any investments in the vaping market at this point. I I really just don't think I like I hate that market because everything is so displaceable. There's no real competitive advantages. Um, like how no many iterations have become, we seen? Uh, yeah. no, one is, no one so far has proven they can separate themselves from the pack yeah. for an extended I mean, period of time. Jewel was kind of the first to like really be popular. It's since died down. I've seen so many they different all- <laughs> iterations. There's, there's puff yeah. bars, there's elf bars. There's so many of these different things there's disposables there's now pod based ones and 
like at least in my experience, there's no preference. Like people don't care which one it is. Um, so I just don't see the competitive advantages. I don't see the mo. I don't see the sticking power of any of these things. Maybe you can be the low cost provider, but uh, I mean, it's not that meaningful. They're not that expensive. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel to me like any money allocated here is really, it feels like very speculative if you invest in any of these things um, as, as one of the premier tobacco companies. So, okay. I don't like it. Do you? No, no, I don't like it either. Um, I would, um, yeah. But I think this brought up a good point. There's been a lot of discussions around the investment community of, you know, Altria is a good business, clearly, obviously the right price, but the capital allocation over the last five to seven years have been quite poor, Obje- uh, pretty objectively. Kronos, I mean, that was a joke. Jewel, that was a joke. Some of the other ones were not great either. Um, they had to sell off that set to Chateau St. Michel wine business, which I guess was kind of small. Um, but historic, you know, farther back, they made some good acquisition moves and they also made that cigar one, I believe, in like 2010. But regardless, what are your thoughts? And I guess this is one in general of their capital allocation. Um, how you look at capital allocation versus a really good business like Altria that might be trading at a dirt cheap price with a you know dividend yield that typically is above 8%, which can be just fantastic for a tax advantaged account. I'd also, let me show that chart here before you go uh, and start on here. Let me share the screen. Now, if we look at Stratosphere here, which again, go to stratosphere.io as our sponsor, support them. You'll really save yourself some time and money. If we look at it, it's loaded up here. We have Altria's long-term chart. I went back to 2009 because... They had uh, they split up um, from Philip Morris International, so some of that stuff gets uh, the chart doesn't. You have to do some pro forma stuff um, that'll make the chart look weird. But if you look at the free cash flow per share, it grew from 2009 to about 2018, um, and then it's been very flat since then. Which for a business that has huge volume declines is not the worst outcome, especially if you can buy them at a sub ten you know, at an earnings yield above 10%. Um, but when they take that money and spend $13 billion on Jewel, you get a little bit concerned. And then they do this, about $3 billion potentially uh, with Enjoy. With that context, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on buying a good business with a bad capital allocator? It's so funny because people are like, please just repurchase shares. Like just or invest buy in back, on, buy back. Invest and in nicotine like, pouches more. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, how about some more enjoy? <laughs> can I <laughs> can I interest you in more vape? Like no one wants this. Um, I think it's really I mean, it's a bummer. But at the same time, I find it interesting because what would you do if you're the CEO here and you feel, you know, Obviously, the number of people that smoke cigarettes is continuing to decline and decline and decline. Now, maybe if there's uh, a push towards greater uh, employment in the labor markets over the next 10 years, that that decline might stabilize somewhat. But um, the, or if we hit a recession, maybe more people smoke cigs. But the, uh, I mean, what would you invest in? What, What are you going to do with that? capital are you just going to let it like are you just going to keep paying it back and kind of risk the long-term 
part of your business. If you if you know you're in secular decline, where do you allocate it? Because you could do it in nicotine pouches, but it seems like Zinn is largely winning. Um, I wouldn't know where to invest. Yeah, don't invest then. Just buy back. Just die slowly. No, buy back. I, I mean, you're dying not- slowly. You're returning cash to shareholders while you're doing it, and you'll probably return more cash than your current market cap over the next ten years. Well, actually, if they buy back, they can. And this is kind of an interesting thing for someone who has a dividend payout strategy uh, that they want to grow their dividend every year. Their overall dividend payouts in future years can decrease if they buy back their stock and their dividend per share can increase. So I think the co- the combination of them for buybacks plus di- and dividends can be quite magical, especially for people looking for dividend income over the long term. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like you're still fighting the secular decline. Yeah, fighting it quite well though. They I mean they have, but I think that I think that management's gotten to the point where they're like well they okay, feel forced. Yeah. Like they're they feel like they're back into backed into a corner where like we got to do something to extend our earnings power. Yeah, and you can't wish anything unless someone unless you're an activist investor, you cannot wish anything to happen. You can't be like, well, stop it, stop it, don't buy back or stop with this. Just make some maybe small purchases and invest in nicotine pouches and some of your um, and then buy back stock and return uh, cash to shareholder through a fat dividend, but. The reality is they're not doing that, so you have to take that into account. And yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's why the that's why the stock trades at, um, and I guess sometimes the PE the PE is probably elevated here. It trades at an EV to EBITDA of twelve. So, I mean, that's cheap, and I think some of that might be a bit understated, actually. Um, but whatever, I haven't looked at the company deeply lately. Yeah, we used to own it, made money, but sold it. One of the few, one of the few. <laughs> oh, that was the other thing I was going to say was this is actually brilliant on Biden's part because they raised capital gains taxes. No one has capital gains. <laughs> yeah, <good> timing. <laughs> At least in the last two years, no one's, no one's got capital gains. So can't tax what you don't have. Uh, oh, right. I don't know. It's a bummer that to see this like, Altria, if I were to get interested in the tobacco markets again, which is certainly possible, it wouldn't be domestically here in the US. And you it would have to be someone who has clear runway to grow in other categories. And it, and you're already seeing that with some of the brands. So preferably like a nicotine pouch. You know, Philip Morris has that now in Swedish match. Um, yeah, it's the other ones, not Altria. Yeah. In the U.S., I mean, the decline in cigarettes is just so much quicker. It feels like, yeah, it's the worst, one of the worst markets out there for the tobacco industry. All right. Um, speaking, I guess, of tobacco investors, our friend Lawrence Hantel, who's been on the show before, has been on the wild, but good follow on Twitter. He had this tweet that spurred a lot of conversation, and this is, I guess, my second topic. He said, I often think that one of the worst bits of luck one can have early on is a windfall on a lottery type stock. When I've seen it happen, the usual result has been a learning of all the wrong lessons, namely that process and risk management are secondary concern. And then there was a response from someone that said, better to pay tuition early and often. Thoughts on this? Thoughts on 
how the first few years can be very formative? Do you think it was good that we kind of went through the bubble and popping of the bubble as we are still in our twenties for this type of stuff? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd, I'd take a big win, but I'd, I'd hopefully learn the same lesson. I don't think I would have learned the same lessons that I've learned over the last three or four years. Yeah. I think the environment that we kind of started into where we've now seen we've seen the top of a cycle and what can happen when when things actually do get um irrationally exuberant where know how it feels know the signs know what it looks like even though you read about in history it's a lot easier to go through it excuse me it's still easier to see it after you've experienced it the first time because i think clear like we are able to see now bubbles forming um much easier than in 2020, 2021, when we got caught up in it a bit. Yeah. And those little things, those little microcosms where you see, okay. So for example, you know, there was a lot of times where people were like, okay, uh, beyond me has a $20 billion valuation, you know, like, uh, there was a bunch of companies that were pre-revenue that had crazy valuations. You're like, does this like, do these little microcosms make you bearish on the overall market? And my answer was, well, does this have any bearings on the earnings multiples that comprise the majority of the S&P 500? So like Google, Apple, does it affect them? Um, no, but it's indicative of the excess liquidity of, of how much like money is being allocated to stuff that doesn't matter. And I think that once that kind of cycles through and once that gets washed away um, affects the top line of a lot of these businesses and it affects the overall uh, like economic environment. So I do think those little indicators aren't just like a brush under the side. It is an indication of excess. Yeah. When Google was growing, what did they grow revenue? Like 60% at one point in 2021 when you're an advertising based business and the largest in the world. Yeah. There might've been some excess getting funneled into those uh into their whatever advertising slots it also having this last two years where we've seen companies that were growing 30 40 percent and now are seeing declines in revenue has helped me realize how difficult growth really is like I yeah. I overestimated so many businesses in terms of quality. Like I said, like oh, this is a really quality business. Look at you know, look how much they're growing, that kind of thing. Like to grow durably at more than ten percent a year is like it, it's really difficult. So um, it's it's certainly I think rationalized my estimates of growth for businesses, which hopefully will allow me to find better investments. Um, and preserve more capital. It's also, I, my concern is I don't want to take away the wrong lessons. Yeah, that's true. Like don't take any risk. Oh, okay. I would never buy something above a PE of 15, stuff like that. You don't want to really constrict yourself and just go with the flow of what is, you know, I don't think you can, well, you can, I think change your overall philosophy, but it needs to make sense. And you have to really be uh, cognizant that you're not just going with what's popular among the crowd at the moment because it could have been a mistake and it was a mistake to buy growth stocks without regardless of price in 2020 and 2021. But 
That doesn't mean you should avoid growth stocks forever. It doesn't mean that you should not be buying any sort of growth stocks right now. Um, it might be a mistake to learn <laughs> or excuse me, a mistake to see that. But back on that revenue growth thing. Yes. And I agree. I mean, that's, you know, don't have to agree with you. It's kind of just, it's just a fact. The most dangerous thing and you get caught up in this when you're a novice or starting out and you kind of, you're learning how to read financials and stuff like that. You go, Oh, this company's growing revenue 50% and it's trading at blank. It's a buy. That is the most really, really dangerous. It's so easy to extrapolate out what's currently happening instead of looking at base rates. And also on the flip side, on the flip side, this is why when you can get someone who's accelerating revenue growth, that can be quite promising because a lot of the times there's a lot of companies out there, maybe right now. Um, I would think that we own some of them, but you know, who knows? Uh, we'll probably be wrong on some of them. But when you can accelerate revenue growth, when someone's extrapolating that near-term stagnation to the downside, that can be a you know a good buying opportunity. What is your general? Uh, this is like the most boring question in the world, but we talked about it a lot yesterday, so I want to throw it out there. What's your general outlook on the markets? For the next two to three years, uh, well, I have no clue because it's not how we think. But for the podcast, it can be fun to discuss. I well, we said it yesterday. Usually, don't like, think in optimism because that usually takes care of itself. But the only thing I'm worried about from a market perspective is that the PEs look cheaper or the earnings multiple looks cheaper than it actually is because we're seeing margin compression, and um, I'm also worried that. The affordability issues across housing, cars, student loans get turned back on, credit card debt is soaring at a really rapid rate. Actually, I have a chart that we can talk about later that looks into that. I'm worried about that something is breaking and that there's lagging effects on this stuff with the Fed raising rates and that things are going to be pretty bad at some point and we can't really see it until it happens. Um, so that's what I'm worried about. But that just means by by businesses that are um, have conservative balance sheets that are utilities, not discretionary items that have recurring revenue, blah, 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 can insulate themselves from inflation. Which are few and far between. The ones yeah. that can truly insulate themselves from inflation. I don't know. I well, used to think yeah, like, oh, this like business immediately. Is yeah. I used to think like, oh, this business is inflation protected. They're not going to be like, they could just raise prices. And it's like, Raising prices without true customer attrition is very rare. Yes. Or the companies, very few companies can do it almost immediately. And it's really just CPG companies, I think. When you look well, at someone where I kind of like- the card the, networks. <laughs> or the card, well, when you're I a take rate company. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Um, yeah. Because when I we look at some of, we like a lot of- you know, targeting or researching what we would describe as digital utilities. This could be software. This could be consumer internet. You know, we like the music space. We like the dating app space. We like software companies within certain markets. Those, I think, are inflation protected over the long term. But in the near term, they can have effects on their business. They do have lots of employees that are going to have raising wages. So if inflation is high consistently, they're going to see margin compression just because the wages are going to go up faster than they can raise subscription prices. And they can't be like Hershey and just go, yeah, we're going to raise the prices by five cents a pack. Yeah, great. We do have a comment uh, from Favre. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, fellas? Long time no see, Favre. Uh, 
nice to have you back in the comment section. Feel free to drop any questions. Um, I know the, I think the general, like the area that I'm probably the most, and we, we sound like broken records on this is like, (laughs) yeah, the area that I like concerns me the most is housing because let me share a screen, but you keep going. I'll share a screen. That's interesting, but there's no way. Well, there's, if housing prices stay where they're at and rates stay where they're at, it's going to hurt the rest of the economy. I agree. I agree. Yeah. To me, it's just like, uh, that's like my, my big, big worry. And then on the, the, on the flip side, like the wealth effect of thinking your house is worth something, um, when it could be worth less, like if you start to see your house price collapse or come down, I feel like spending my contract as, as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and here's a, here's a chart. If you're on Twitter, Lance Lambert is a writer at fortune who covers the real estate market. He's pretty good at throwing out a lot of facts here. This is from August, but I think it still applies now. And I think one of the big things that just housing bulls talk about, or people that say the housing market's going to be fine. Talk about as they say, well, there's a shortage of homes and they state some number. But when you look at these four different sites, which are four different, one we got Freddie Mac, Moody's, Realtor.com, uh, people within the space, people with good knowledge, people with good data. Realtor.com estimates there's 5.24 million homes short in the US. Freddie Mac, 3.8. Uh, this company, uh, their handle, I don't know what it is, says 1.7 million. Moody's says 1.6 million. My thought when seeing this is that this is such a wide variance that no one actually knows what the home shortage is. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always a shortage when there's not, until there's not. Like, it's it's not necessarily going to be fixed by new house supply. It's going to be a lot of people. Well, I guess in some sense, there's so many homes that are being owned right now. And a long, on a long enough timeline, all the boomers die. <laughs> I mean, the mortgage. I I mean. What was it? I saw some crazy stat that uh, most mortgages are like were all based on 2020, 2021 rates. There was like a lot, like a ton of refis. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily that like they, those people are going to default because they're not variable rate mostly. I assume almost like 99% of mortgages are fixed rate on some low rate base, but like new people just can't like new wannabe homeowners just can't afford them at these rates. Like the, the average I'd say, I mean, we see it with mortgage applications down 40 or 50% year over year. Like it's just, I think the, the answer is going to be more renters, unfortunately, which means rent prices would probably go up. Um, or yeah, I guess maybe there will have to be just build your way out. Are we really short that many houses? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, here's the thing. But if we build our way out now over the next five years, then eventually there was a huge glut. Huge. Unless the population, granted, there's other variables, unless the population goes up by a significant amount. Yeah. Which really all the indicators are that it's gonna stagnate. Yeah, I don't I'm not sure. The the big concern for me that like gets me hung up on like could home prices stay elevated is like people just unwilling to sell. 
They own yeah. so much of their home. They're old. So many baby boomers are homeowners or a percentage of the homeowner pie. Like they, they're just going to hold on to these things. It's just going to be less movement. Yeah. And, and I think on, on a real basis, that means they're going to be down, even though nominally they'll be up. Because inflation in that scenario will still be high still. Prices, like home prices? Yeah. If home prices stay high, inflation will likely stay high because it'll flow through to rental prices with these interest rates. And then, um, sorry, I'm trying to do a lot of mental connections in my head here. Uh, and then the prices, you know, won't. Look, they won't go down, but on a real basis, they're going to be down quite a bit. We're already seeing that really right now. It's also, okay, I see this all the time too, which is people are like, no, I'm getting bids. Like there's a lot of bids on on my house. Or like, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I have a friend that has a house for sale and he, he got a lot of offers. Like that's oh, great. Cool. Like everyone's got their own anecdotal evidence with this stuff, but mortgage applications are down 40 or 50% year over year. How do prices <laughs> yeah, go up in that environment? There's yeah. half the bidders. There are half the bidders there were last year or two years ago. Do like, you I think you're going to get the same price quoted to you? That seems very unlikely. Yeah. I, there was home purchases in 2007. That's pretty meaningless if one person buys a home. Here's another topic though. And I'll share the screen again so you can kind of see it and read it a bit, Ryan, uh, for the YouTube. And I can't remember if we put these on Spotify as well. All right, loading the share screen. Here's a tweet from, and I'll have this in our Sunday newsletter as well for anyone that wants to take a look. I thought it was very interesting. It's from this, I think it's anonymous, Colorado Travis account. Um, Starts out the thread, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It says, we are now at the beginning of the window for when we might start to feel the effect of the first rate hike, which again, were about a year ago. And he quotes long and variable legs, and he explains why are the legs on interest rate changes long and variable and why we're not going to see it here. Now, there's two things. There's structural things that affect the economy, and then psychological when you raise interest rate. The structural one, we all know, it changes the price of collateral, it changes the price of capital, it changes the price of money. Um, the psychological one, though, and the structural one, excuse me, is going to happen when they raise rates, right? But the psychological one, it it doesn't, it can, we don't know when it's going to impact decisioning. And he, he lays out this very interesting chart, which I'll load up the screenshot here. I'll describe it for the listeners, where you have um, a chart, one of the lines in the chart, and it goes from 1995 to now, is revolving debt outstanding of consumer credit. And generally goes up into a straight line. It goes up much faster right before the great financial crisis. And then it goes down. And then it goes up again. Then it goes down during COVID. And now it's gone up again. But during that time, the GFC, we saw uh, the second line on this chart here, which would be credit card interest rates. They went, the interest rates went up and then consumer debt went down, which makes sense, right? They're trying to tighten the economy. Um, and this is, I think, before the housing crash, which then they lowered rates to zero. But what's interesting here is we're seeing consumer debt levels rise, but the interest rate is also rising at the same time. So right now, the interest rates are not stopping consumers from spending, but they will eventually, is kind of what his threat is saying. We just haven't seen that yet from a psychological level. They will eventually because... Uh... People Jay Powell wants it. Spend. He is saying over and over he wants it to happen. I mean, if I do think there's maybe to some extent, um, 
with like consumer spending an addiction where it's like it's just what, what you know or yeah. like a hat <laughs> it's habitual like um you know you spent this much on on your food bill for the week you're like well i can continue to spend it that's not that big of a problem but then you know your, your debt levels begin to go up and it slowly slowly tightens and you're, you're still spending that because you're kind of addicted to spending that and it's it's your habit but you don't really have the money to do so obviously that doesn't end well and it ends in tightening um yeah but i, I think it'll take some time to trickle through the other part that i'm seeing kind of anecdotally around like my peer group, and we've talked about this is like the unemployment stuff. So many of so many people I knew just weren't working in 2020, 2021 because they were like, well, I, I have enough liquidity or I have enough cash. I'm getting stimulus checks, that kind of thing too. Like young people, you're at, you can be with your parents. Especially yeah, during like, COVID, it didn't really matter. Like, I don't need the money. So I'm not going to work like some labor job that like hurts my, hurts my ego in a way. Like, I'm not going to work at Chipotle. Like, that's kind of like it almost feels degrading. Now it's there like, are there are too many people, and I guess we're one of them. There are way too many people with <laughs> that Chipotle is above, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, and it's like a, it's like a, I don't know. I think it hurts a lot of people's egos to like work labor jobs. Um, which, I'm jealous of Chipotle, honestly. Twenty five bucks an hour now, it's pretty good. Sorry, go ahead. Twenty five bucks an hour. Well, at least in Seattle. Yeah, some of them. That's pretty good. Uh, But I think now people don't have a choice. They they have to work or they're not going to get paid. Um, And so I think that's why you're seeing unemployment continue to fill despite layoffs at big tech companies. Everyone's talking about layoffs and they're like, well, why is unemployment going up? There's all those open labor jobs too, open vacancies uh, or vacant. Immigration's positions. been zero for a while. Yeah, too. That that helps. Anyway, uh, we're not so, zero, but really low. Yeah, we sound like a bear porn podcast this week, but it's fun to talk no. about. It's it's uh. There's been a lot of well, this week, frankly, there was a lot of data around that, so I don't think we can be blamed here. But it's also fun. Let's talk about something else for the last ten minutes, though. Did you have any miscellaneous things? Let me see what I had linked here. Oh, I liked my own tweet. What other, what was the topic? I've seen some, Uh, I found something funny because we just kind of wrapped up earnings season and I've seen this so much now where you've got unprofitable or like marginally profitable software tech businesses that have been just pouring money through stock-based compensation and just diluting the crap out of shareholders. And then they're like, the stock comes down and it's like the only lever that the CFO knows how to pull because they don't want to like either if you don't want to do layoffs or you don't want to decrease compensation, they just slap a repurchase authorization on it where they're like, yeah. we, we got approved for $5 billion in buybacks, which, so that's going to offset any dilution. Don't worry about that. But it's like, first I of love all, how they think that's like going to make the investment community happy. First of all, an authorization, it's not a buyback. A buyback is a buyback. So I'll believe it when I see it. Like anyone can authorize money um, to do something. But also, none of this stuff is truly offsetting dilution. In in a lot of cases, yeah. Yeah, it's just really not working. I, or it's unsustainable. Like it's a short-term stop. Like maybe your share 
account declines 2% year over year, but you can't do this on a continuing basis. And then it's up 5% next year. Yeah. Be wary of that. I think uh, we fall into that trap. Uh, we're trying to watch out for it is when they have the free cash flow targets. The only loophole they have is SBC um, or they change their definition of free cash flow. So my recommendation, when someone has a free cash flow target, watch the SBC line, watch if they change the definition of free cash flow. What uh, uh, is better than adjusted EBITDA, but they can make it adjusted EBITDA at some point if they want. Yeah. Did you have any takeaways from the Spotify stream on event? Uh, I thought it was a mixed bag. Like we're looking from a podcast from our own perspective. And I guess it kind of ties into the investor perspective because if they do better for podcasters, then it's better for the their business. Um, I thought there were some good tools. They're consolidating everything into their Spotify for podcasters thing with makes sense. They have signed some good deals with more um, people that are big in the space that should attract a lot more MAUs to the platform. They signed NPR, which is a huge podcasting studio or you know publisher, I guess. For their automated advertising, they showed some decent numbers on the automated advertising. But the two things we're watching that they really didn't announce yet is opening um, the advertising marketplace to everyone and opening the advertising marketplace internationally. Those are the two most important things, maybe uh, to the whole... The streaming ads to everyone. Yeah, yeah, their advertising marketplace, automated advertising marketplace. Would you agree those are the two most important things you're watching for for this entire business outside of the core, obviously, users and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, there's like small stuff that they like just need to do. Um, international rollouts, one. Um, and, the, and the difficulty is if I don't see the international rollout or I don't see them open up more inventory, which means like letting all podcasts access the streaming um, or the automated ad network, it tells me there isn't enough advertiser demand right now. Yeah. And then on the flip side, it's not going to happen overnight, but you want to see it happen on a relatively quick pace. And they showed some progress here, you know, signing up NPR. That's a lot of inventory. They should have a YouTube like a pro. I mean, if I'm, if I were them, I would just copy YouTube as much as they can in yeah, terms of for, like the, the yeah. platform side. But for audio. Yep, yeah, that's how you... Uh, I yeah. thought just the discovery would be sweet. I'm hoping that this, at this point, uh, this video we're having right now shows up on somebody's discover feed because... <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. It, you know, it spurs so much new demand. That's what's so great about YouTube. Um, even though we don't, the, the value of an ad isn't as high or, or we don't collect that much um, from YouTube as we would from Spotify. Um, their recommendation algorithm is so good that it's it's new eyeballs, it's new ears. Um, and it helps us with organic, yeah. uh, organic ads. Um, but yeah, Spotify has been talking a big game about podcast discovery since maybe, what, last two years or so? Yeah. About getting something to market. And it's still been TBD. They are launching stuff with this new thing. And I'm going to choose to be optimistic because I hope they nail it because the podcast market could use some discovery um, stuff, really. Yeah, I do worry sometimes too that they are prioritizing their own podcasts over yes, like the open ecosystem. They dock, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. The hand like, that feeds you is the one that beats you or whatever. 
Yeah, or they get like maybe they're only gonna start with NPR and Joe Rogan and Caller Daddy on the Discover feed and not open it up to everyone to like get more listeners that way. That just I don't like that. Um and the streaming ad insertion is only available to Spotify podcasts, like Spotify's podcast, as opposed to the dynamic. It's not a huge difference, but and maybe they just don't have the advertiser demand yet, but like I don't know. That would that kind of concerns me is that they're gonna like YouTube. No, well, they can't prioritize. do it on Apple. They can't do streaming on Apple because Apple that's that's Apple's fault. That's not their fault. Couldn't they make it functional though for no. just your Spotify track? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they they I mean, I'm saying streaming there. streaming ad insertion is only available right now, I believe. To Spotify owned or Spotify exclusive podcasts, uh, uh, maybe, but they do pay us more for ads on Spotify versus off Spotify. So I'm not exactly sure, but I guess that is it's unclear to me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, my that's my concern is like with YouTube, you've just got such an open platform that like there's no risk that they're going to prioritize. I mean, they tried to do like their own content for a while. Um, hey, maybe that means Spotify is on the same path, <laughs> right? The difficulty is like the eyeballs started on YouTube. They didn't. Yeah. YouTube didn't have to compete for those. Or, I mean, they're they're at the point where it's such a monopoly that they don't have to get the eyeballs over to YouTube. The eyeballs are just there. Spotify has to attract the eyeballs first before it can really create this like open platform, which is a much harder task, and it means that they're going to have to give probably preferential treatment to their own shows first. Um, yeah, they're doing a lot of good things to attract people on the consumer side, especially with some of those popular shows shows doing video um, where the only way you can watch the video for people that want to is on Spotify. So they get, get users to switch. You also have the Q and a polls that have been popular on a couple of shows. They're only available on Spotify. You know, if someone says, Hey, look at the poll, you're listening on Apple, you're listening on overcast and you go, Hey, there's no poll here. And they say, Oh, the polls are only available if you listen on Spotify and it's free. That's a great customer acquisition tool. Um, along with other things that I'm forgetting at this moment, but I think that's good. But yes, they're not in as advantaged of a position as YouTube. Although I think, and we can dunk on ourselves if this is wrong. I think Spotify's moat will be wider three to four years from now. Doesn't mean the stock is going to work, but I think their moat will be wider three to four years from now. Yeah, but, I think it's probably from a low base. Like users will certainly be up. I imagine they'll have more users on the platform. I, which, I didn't say it wasn't a low base. Didn't say it wasn't. But like, I don't know. It just to me, it's not. It it is it isn't gonna. I don't know if it'll translate to cash flow. That's the issue. Yeah. Well, that is the big thing. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. It is, uh, we're coming up on an hour. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Make sure to check out our dating app themes starting next week. Watch these live on YouTube every Thursday around lunchtime Eastern, usually 1230 PM Eastern. Uh, did I say the other disclosure that something might be owned by some no, stocks in the show? Not financial might be advisors. By- yeah, yeah, we're not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We're general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all again. We'll see you next time.